Let's pray together, will you please? Father, as we come before you and we sit at your feet, may Father, your spirit speak to each and every one of us. Father, may he refresh this familiar so that it may fall on fertile soil. May Father, he take what we call reminders and may he use them to rekindle and reignite our visions and fire for you. O oh Lord, we confess the cares of this world have stolen much of our basic devotion from you. We have been distracted, and Father, we have allowed it to happen. Father, we confess it before you, knowing that you have forgiven us our sins, and we thank you for that. So speak to us afresh, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the years, there's been a lot of debates, there's been a lot of discussion about why the church has been so ineffective in penetrating the society with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact is that while in some places in this world, the church is claiming increasing number of converts, but there is serious lack of commitment. In other words... While there are these huge numbers that are being reported, it seems like there are a lot of decisions without devotion. And that creates a lot of problems. That creates a lot of problems for the church. And so when people talk about this, they go to, they try to assign many different reasons for this and they run the gamut. They run the gamut from those that would say there's not enough prayer, there's not enough planning. There are those who would say that there's just gross apathy among God's people. Accusations abound that the church has chosen to preach a brand of Christianity light, L-I-T-E, in which what happens is that in the name of numerical success, there are promises of great blessings and benefits with little or no call to commitment or inconvenience. And so what happens is a whole generation, many generations are rising up without this firm sense of commitment and dedication to what God wants us to do. Now, the results are devastating. The results are devastating. I was reading this just recently, and this, I'm sad to say, is the state of the church in America. And so the statistics and the studies show this. That since 1994, the evangelical population in the U.S. has decreased from 17% to 12%. Okay? That 80% of the approximately 350,000 churches in America are in a state of decline. And that 60% of those who claim to be born-again adults have no set goals for spiritual development and have no established processes to achieve them. Now, it's fair to say that since this study was done in 1994, that things haven't gotten any better, but probably even worse. As you see decisions being made in the United States now that affect the world. And so we see this steady decline happening right before our eyes. And the thing about it here in Singapore is we must not fall into the trap of believing that's just happening over there and that it doesn't touch us. It is touching us. 
If you talk to pastors and you talk to Christian leaders and you talked about to people in the pew here in Singapore, they would say they see many of these same things happening already in Singapore. It's like people are looking out over the horizon and they see the clouds gathering. They see the storm coming, as it were, as they see some of these very same similar symptoms. Despite all of the best efforts to have the right programs, the right processes, the right plans, and the right people in place, the church is stubbornly stagnant and are at a steady state of decline. And this all results, all of this is happening right before our eyes. Why is the church unable to get untracked and impact its culture? We need to ask ourselves that important question. We need to see where we fit into this. Now, there is good reason to suspect the church is looking for the next great vision or movement. And we've fallen into this trap of saying every five to six or seven years, somebody writes a book, somebody gives a lecture, somebody gives a sermon, and everybody jumps on board. And that becomes the vision, that becomes the passion of the church for the next umpteen years. And so in the past, for example, we have gotten caught up with the the great uh, church growth movement. We know that everything had to be bigger than life. That big was in. And everybody, if you weren't big, you weren't in. If you weren't big, you weren't reaching people for Christ. And you ought to hang your head in shame and so on and so forth. And so everybody was rushing to that. Then another great movement came up. It was the emerging church. And suddenly everybody said, the church is not relevant anymore. So let's go out there and be weird. As weird as we can be. So that people will be attracted back to Jesus Christ. And that became the next big movement. And so steadily there has been these great movements and suddenly everybody jumps on board. And right now there seems to be a little bit of a lull. There seems to be a little bit of a lull. We've, we've, we've kind of uh, gone through this stage with the Gospel Coalition and all of these other things and everybody jumped on board and some good things happened from that. But you steadily see it beginning to soften. You see it beginning to slow down. And it's almost like everybody's saying, Where is the next great movement that will lead us? But probably there is a much more basic reason why the church is floundering. And that is that the church has gotten away from its original intended mission. What is that? The mission is to help people experience genuine lifelong spiritual transformation in their hearts. And that comes with faith in Jesus Christ. We've somehow fallen into the idea that all we have to do is fill our lives with all kinds of idioms and we have to fill ourselves with all kinds of short statements and we will be fine and we'll all get through this. And hallelujah, there's another, the sun rises tomorrow. That's what we've fallen into. But we have not experienced real deep-seated heart transformation. Now, by genuine spiritual transformation, what do we mean? We mean where people become more like Christ. And this happens when people are discipled and in turn disciple others to be more like Christ. We've fallen into the, uh, again, we've fallen into the habit, if you will, of being religious without being truly belonging to God. And so this is what happens. Our heart becomes hard. Our hearts become uh, complacent. We become apathetic, as it were. 
We're happy to fill the church every week with our faithful attendance, but nothing really good or uh, happens in, during the time that we're here. Our hearts are not touched. Our hearts are not changed. And as a result, our homes are not changed. Our workplaces are not changed. Our culture is not changed. Our country is not changed. We just keep go along to go along. And so that's what happens. And that's the state of affairs. So what we're looking for is to get back to the original mission of having genuine spiritual transformation, which is becoming more like Christ. And so God knows this, and he gave this to, he knows what we need, and he gave us these things early on in his ministry. And it's not rocket science here. How is one transformed, and how in turn does one transform another person? Well, this happens through what we call discipleship, and that's what Jesus did. And this falls easily through two ways. First of all is the mandate, the mandate. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, the mandate was is given not only here but in other parts of the Scripture, and it's repeated in many different parts of the Scripture. But we have to understand what is this mandate that as we have been given. And so three things we want to see. The first thing is the authority behind the mandate. Look at verse 18. Oftentimes when speakers talk about Matthew chapter 28, they start with verse 19. But in actuality, they forget all about verse 18, which is really, really important. Because this is where he says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, some people will probably look at this and say, oh, Jesus felt the need to have to reinforce that he's in charge, <laughs> that he's, he's in control, all right? He was reminding the disciples that. No, what he could also be saying is that he uh, is the one that is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is in the one who is taking responsibility for all of the things that God wants to do here on the earth. And so this is a very important Jesus is declaring that he has all authority, so we ought to obey him and need not fear about whatever or wherever he asks us to do or go. Like the early church, we ought to go boldly into our cultures and our world, knowing that we speak and act under the authority of Christ and not only not under our own um, uh, authority and strength. It is under his power and guidance that we go. You see, if there's one thing I've learned about Singapore since I've been here, it's that everybody is looking, who told me to do this? <laughs> who told me to do this? Everybody's pointing the finger. Who told you to do this? And so when we Christians go out into our communities, into our city, into our cultures of work and, and education, we go in the authority of Christ. We go in the authority of Christ. Who told you to tell me about Christ? Christ himself. Okay? And we ought not to back down from that. So, the authority behind the mandate is Christ himself. But then he also gives us the activity to carry out the mandate. And this is found in verse 19 and on to the first part of verse 20. And we, to help us with this, we need to understand several key words. Now, when you look at a sentence, normally we are drawn, first of all, to the verb. We're drawn to the verb. That's the action word, all right? So there is only one 
one verb in this whole verse. Let me read it for you. It says in verse 9, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations to baptize and baptize um, to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is the verb? The verb is make disciples. Well, that brings an interesting question. What is, what does disciple mean? Well, disciple was the most common term that was used to refer to believers in Jesus Christ. Those who believe that they were sinners, those who believe that they were in need of salvation to be saved from the wrath of God, and that Jesus Christ himself became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. These were believers, the ones who embraced that, the ones who were depending on that for their salvation from their sins. So, the disciple attaches, but when you get technically into disciple, the people who would read this would have an image of who a disciple is and what a disciple does. What are those images? Well, the disciple attaches themselves to a teacher. The disciple identifies with the teacher. The disciple listens and learns from the teacher. The disciple spends lots of time with the teacher. The disciple adopts the ways of thinking and doing of the teacher. So, you see this close interaction here, uh, that a disciple was very serious about uh, his teacher, which would, in this case, would be Jesus Christ. The Bible makes no distinction between a believer and a disciple. If you are a believer, you are expected to be a disciple. And so, what happens here is that a disciple is more than a mere convert, the 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 disciple was more than a mere convert. If I went to you and said, now don't do this, but don't raise your hand. How many of you in here could confidently say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? Probably most hands would go up. No problem. Now, if I turned around and said, how many of you would consider yourselves disciples? There would be fewer hands. Why? Because people have somehow managed to think in their mind they are two different people. They are two different people. Whereas in the Bible, they're not. They're one in the same. They're one in the same. The expectation of a believer is that they would be a disciple. They would be into this, uh, attaching themselves to a teacher, identifying themselves with a teacher, listening and learning from the teacher, and so on and so forth. You see? That was the expectation. And so, let's get it straight. A believer ought to be a disciple. Okay? That was the normal expectation of as it's used in the Bible. Now, there are three separate participles that surround the verb. The participles are unique. They're both action words, but they're also descriptive words. And so, they surround this term, the verb, make disciples. And it gives us the pattern of the early church. How were they going to make disciples? Jesus was a master teacher. So, he summarized the whole thing. And he's sitting looking at people like you and me who, 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 who just give me something I can hang my hat on. Just give me something I can understand. And Jesus does it. And he says, go. 
Go is a participle, and it could be translated while you are going, while you are about doing life. Make disciples of all nations. So wherever you go, wherever you, whatever you do, be witnesses for Jesus and seek to help people come and see Jesus and embrace him as their savior. Then the next word is baptizing. This is an act of identification with Jesus Christ. Remember a disciple? What does he do? He identifies with a teacher. And so how did they do this? How did you know you were a follower of Jesus? You got baptized, okay? And therefore, you identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? So Jesus, being the master teacher, said, first of all, go. Whatever you're doing, go do this. Be a witness. Then he says, baptizing them. Then thirdly, he says, teaching them. Teaching the baptized believer the truths of God. And he's just continuing on with the same thing that Paul shared with Timothy when he wrote to Timothy and tried to help Timothy understand his role. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Pass on what you know. Pass on what you have received. Now, where is the church dropped the ball? Perhaps it is because increasingly churches have abandoned this pattern of go, baptize, and teach. Instead, they've left the evangelizing and edifying, the reaching and the teaching to be done to the people that they hire. That they hire. And so they say to people like myself, they say, hey, We pay your salary. You go do, go baptize and teach, and so on and so forth. But that isn't who Christ was talking about. He was talking to anybody who is a believer. So what happens is that converts join the swelling ranks of spectators. Now, to stop the church from stagnating and deteriorating, believers must become mature disciples and get back to obeying and carrying out the mandate to make disciples. Got it? So, God is talking to all of us. He's saying not to the favored few or anything like that. He says it's for all of us here to be about this. The activities around disciples are bearing witness, helping them to identify with uh, with Christ, and then teaching believers the truths of God so that they can, and helping them apply it to their daily life. So this is the activity that has been assigned to us and should help us carry out the mandate. Now, the third thing I want you to see is found in verse 20, the last part of verse 20. And in the last part of verse 20, it says, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And look at this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does he says? He says, you go in my authority. These are the activities that you should be engaged in. Then thirdly, he comes back and says, I'm going to give you the ability to do this. How? By his presence. The coming of the Holy Spirit made it possible for Christ to be in us as we go forth and fulfill this mandate. Okay? That's how he does this. With the Spirit's presence with us, and his power in us, we can make a difference. 
Well, you say to yourself, okay, give me an example. Give me an example. Okay. I don't have to give you an example because it's recorded for us in the book of the Bible itself. The Apostle Paul took these literal words and went out and did it. Paul goes to Corinth to evangelize. Corinth was a horrible place. You talk about tough audience. You know, GBC is a tough audience, but Corinth is even a rougher audience, okay? And so he goes off and he preaches, he evangelizes. And then in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, it says that some people actually accepted Christ and they got baptized. So he's already fulfilled the, the, uh, the Great Commission, as it were. But in verse 11, he starts to teach them the truths of God, okay? Now, that's when... The, the, it, it all came apart. That's when things really started to happen. Opposition arose. People began to say, I disagree with you, Paul, and so on and so forth. Paul, you better get out of here because there's a bunch of guys that are going to take your life. And so on and so forth. Threats, persecution, opposition, all of these things came up. This was a difficult time for Paul. Paul goes to the Lord, Lord, what am I going to do here? The answer comes in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. And it says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Okay? He didn't say to Paul, I'm going to send you reinforcements. I'm going to, I'm going to send you this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you a couple of miracles in your pocket, you know, so that you can just wow these people. He didn't do that. What he said, said all he said was, do not be afraid. I am with you. And Paul went on to establish a church in Corinth. You see, that's what we have to go back to. And so, um, when believers are discipled and when they in turn disciple others, this is when great things can begin to happen. This is when genuine spiritual transformation can happen. When individuals are changed, uh, their families can be changed, their homes can be changed, their communities can be changed, their cities can be changed, and even their countries can be changed. So what is it left for us? It's left for you and me to be convicted, convinced, and committed to this mandate to make disciples and not simply settle for being converted, for simply being converted. Some of you have heard this message so many times and so much and said so much better. But my heart is that God will really take this and really build a fire under us that we would get back to this mandate. We have Christ's authority behind us. We have a pattern of activities to guide us. We have the ability to accomplish it with the spirit of the Lord in each of us. There's no excuse for any of us to say, we can't participate in this. There's no reason for any of us to sit back and say, let them do it. Let him do it. Let her do it. Because this is a mandate for each and every one of us. But having said that, I want you to notice something. When did Jesus give this command? When did he do it? Did he give it at the beginning? Did he give it at the middle? Did he give it at the end? He gave it towards the end of his earthly ministry. Now, when I read the Bible, I have more questions than answers. 
Okay, I have more questions than that. I don't know how you read the Bible, but when I read the Bible, I, I have all kinds of questions that run into my mind. And maybe this question are the same ones that you are asking yourself. Why did Jesus have such great confidence in these 12 men? I mean, think about it. These 12 guys were not perfect Christians. Remember what they were doing when, when Jesus was telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to go die on the cross. They were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty normal to me, all right? These guys were not so super-duper godly Christians that they were able to embrace and go out and do these things right away. They're like you and me. They have their faults. They have their weaknesses. But Jesus does what? He looks at these 12 guys. And he says to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, da, 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 da. He entrusts them the work of God. What gave him that confidence? What did he do to prepare them? The answer lies in how Christ discipled him. He shows us how we can disciple others and how we can be discipled. Now, think about this for a minute. Okay, think about this for a minute. This leads us to the method. Starts with the mandate. It starts with, we got our marching orders. Then he, we got to go off and we got to say, how are we going to pull this off? Okay? The summary was, go, baptize, and teach. But how are we going to do this? How should we do this? All right? We go back to see and observe how Jesus did it. Now, let me start off with models of discipleship. They abound. They abound. There's many of them. Some of them are traditional, some of them are very contemporary, some are very creative and innovative. Now, I'm going to put a commercial in here, okay, for a few books, and you can get more detail. I can only cover so much in, in the short time that I have. The first one, how many of you remember Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church? Okay, many of you say, hey, I grew up under that. And you remember the baseball diamond? Remember the baseball diamond, first base, second base, third base, and home, and then in the center was this intimate relationship with Christ? Okay, remember that? And so what happens there is that in this simple diamond illustration, Rick Warren was able to communicate what it was that disciples had to pass through. They had to know Christ, grow in Christ, learn to serve Christ, and learn to share Christ. Okay? He did the church a great, great service by coming out with this. It's understandable, it's repeatable, and it's very well done. Preceding him was this fellow named Bill Hull. Bill Hull, okay? Now, Bill Hull is kind of like a mega guru of discipleship, and he was into it very early. In fact, he wrote a book called The Complete Book of Discipleship. <laughs> okay, I would never write the complete book of anything because <laughs> someone's always going to add more stuff to it. But he wrote this book. What's notable about this is that he came out with the come and see me, uh, come and follow me, uh, come and uh, uh, be with me, and come and remain in me. Okay, that was his, that was his tagline. That was his famous tagline. And it was, it's very useful as well. Another one is Robert Coleman. And Robert Coleman wrote a book called The Master Plan of Salvation. Now, you would think, what does salvation have to do with discipleship? Except for the fact that when you are a believer, you are a what? You are a disciple, you see? And it folds in very nicely. And so he has 12 steps. So if you're 
don't want to be a wimp, and you don't want to just go for four or three, five or something like that. Go for 12, okay? And so Coleman will help you there. The last one was probably a, a much uh, earlier earlier work. This was written in 1885. It's the book by A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve. And that was a foundational book on discipleship. Now, you say to yourself, okay, pastor, these fine scholars, these fine authors have studied God's, uh, Jesus' method of, of discipling, and, and they have come up with so many schemes and so many things. We can't possibly cover them all. So what I did was I went back and I tried to look for common threads, things that they all agreed on, okay? And I came up with uh, five of them, okay, five of them. And so follow me along. The first one is come and see, come and see. This was in the first four months of the period when Jesus had with his disciples. If you look at John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 36. John chapter 1, verse, I'm sorry, verse 39. John chapter 1, verse 39. And what do you see there? You see this, uh, this uh, uh, event happening. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, the context of this, the context of this, was these early disciples were challenged to go and check out Jesus Christ. And so they didn't want to invite themselves in, so to speak, so directly. They're they're a little Asian that way. So they come at it indirectly, and they say, can we see where you stay? You know, they didn't say, I'm going to stay for lunch, I'm going to stay for dinner. They didn't do anything like that. They just said, can we just see where you stay? And it's up, they stayed the whole time with him. And, uh, and so they, they were coming to see. Jesus put out the challenge. Come and see who I am and what I am teaching. Then the next stage, um, some people will call this the stage of evangelism. When you and I share Christ with people, invite them to come and see who Jesus Christ is. People usually are not ready to receive Christ on the first invitation. They want to check things out. So let them. Let them. So evangelize them by letting them come and see. The next thing is come and follow me. This is found in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And so in Matthew chapter 4, we find this in verse 18 to 20. Matthew chapter 4, 18 to 20. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So, what happens here, these folks had already been convinced that he was the Messiah, so he goes one step further, he says, come and follow me. This happened over the next 10 months of their uh, time with Jesus. They were, uh, they were called to a deeper commitment. He was going to train them. He was going to show them personally how he did things. People call this oftentimes the established stage. You've got to get them on the ground. You've got to get them, let them see you a little bit closer and get to know you and get, their, uh, get established. The third stage was come and be with me. Come and be with me. We already read uh, uh, Mark chapter 3, but in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 13, what do we see there? Luke chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus is looking out over his disciples, and he says in verse 10, Then the day came, he called his disciples to him, and chose twelve of them, 
whom he also named as apostles. Now, he was really drawing them in. He was really drawing them in closer to him. And this is, they were going to get even deeper prepared. They were going to be prepared even uh, better. And people call this the equip stage. Now, I was looking at some of the books, and I was looking for a good summary. How could I summarize for you what happened at stage three? At stage three. And so this author had this one. And it's a very familiar one to some of you, but it's worth going over. First of all, Jesus went through this phase. I do, you watch. I do, you watch. The next thing he did was, I do, you help. So he says, I'm going to do it, but I want you to come alongside me. And then, you do, I help. So he says, hey, you take a whack at it. I'll be here, I'll help you. And then, the last one is, you do, I watch. All right? So it was ultimate delegation. So he says, you go ahead and do it. I'll be here. I'll be. Don't, don't worry. Don't 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 get all excited. I'll be here watching you, and I'll, I'll give you a tip here and there if you need it. And he says those were the four stages that he went through with these disciples in phase three. In phase three, so come and be with me. And then this is what he did. The last ones come and remain in me. He says, look, I'm not just going to give you all the methods. I'm not going to give you all the tricks of the trade here. But I want you to remember something very important. What was it that he wanted them to remember? John chapter 15, verse uh, uh, 4 to 7. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And then in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. In he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, what? You can do nothing. And so he says to these people, he says, you got all the, you got all the tips, you've got all the technique. Now I want you to remember, stay close to me. So people have identified these different uh, phases. They said there was the evangelism stage. There was the establishing phase. Then there was the equipping phase. And then he says there's the empower stage. Remember when we talked about what Jesus said to Paul when he was trying to found the church in Corinth? He said, do not be afraid for what? I am with you. And this stage is so, so, so important. So those are the four. But there's one more. There's one more element that is common to all of these writers and all of these who have studied Jesus' technique. If you go in the Bible, you will see it very clearly. And that is, come and be with me in community. Come and be with me in community. You know, when he got these 12 guys together, you know, you know it just amazed me, okay? Because if you look at them, they came from opposite ends of the pole. For example... You have the government worker, the tax collector, Matthew, okay? And then you have this guy called Simon the Zealot. Who are they, okay? You have a government guy, and you have an opposition party member. <laughs> and so he's got these two guys in the same group, all right? And there are other distinctions, too, because you've got a physician, you've got fishermen, okay? So you've got, you know, people from different walks of life. But he melded them into one singular community. And how did he do that? He kept reminding them to love one another. 
John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I wish someday that we can go through this in, in a study and see how much loving one another means to God. One person said that love is the oil that keeps the wheels of relationships moving. You know? And that is powerful. That is powerful. You can't have good, healthy relationships unless you have love going on, genuine love. And so this is what Jesus said in John chapter 13. Uh, He says this in verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Wow, that's that's a lot. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so that's what's going to happen. It happened in communion. It happens in groups. Now, if you're in a group of believers, what can you expect to happen? What can you expect to happen? Now, we don't have time to go through every single verse, so I'm going to flash them up on the screen. These are the things that happen in a community community context. Number one, speaking the truth in love to one another, Ephesians chapter 4. Forgiving and forbearing with one another, Colossians chapter 3. Teaching and admonishing one another, Colossians chapter 3. Confessing our sins and praying for one another, James chapter 5. Encouraging and building up one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All of these things can happen when you're in community. And so there's a lot of people that say, well, I'm a lone ranger. I'm a lone wolf. You know, I, I grow best on my own. Well, yeah, there's some of those, but very few. The great majority of, if not all of us, need to be in some kind of community with other people who will urge us along, that won't be afraid to point out things that are happening in our life. And so that happens in community. And all of this is done for what? For for, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll point out verse 14 to you especially. It says in verse 14, the latter half of the verses you're looking at, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. He wants to bring us to spiritual maturity. That's what he wants us to do. That's the goal at the end. So how should this all impact all of us, and how should it impact people around us? Remember, the church is in... Is in stubborn stagnancy. It's stubbornly stagnant. The church is steadily declining. How are we going to stop the slide? How are we going to break the, the pattern? First of all, the prayer is that you will want to be in an ongoing relationship where you are being discipled. I'm in a discipleship relationship with people. There are people in my life who are teaching me things. There are people in my life who are encouraging me. There are people in my life who are praying for me, so on and so forth. It's an ongoing relationship. Don't think it has to stop. The next thing, the prayer is that you will want to disciple someone else. By what? Evangelizing them, establishing them, equipping them, and empowering them through an environment of community. Well, how do you get started? Okay, first of all, you want to be discipled. And I'm going to flash these up all at one time, so do it very quickly, please. If you flash them all up, if you want to be discipled, then initiate something, okay? 
Don't wait for somebody to come tap you on the shoulder. Go to them. I make you a promise. I make you a promise. If you want to be discipled, come to me, come to Pastor Bobby, come to Pastor Oliver, go to Carrie, and we will hook you up. We will do our best to find a place where you can be discipled. Dedicate yourself to it, participate in, and then execute what has been assigned to you. And then, if you want to be to do discipling, invite. Invite people. And then impart to them what you know. Demonstrate to them what they ought to be doing. And then turn them loose and delegate them to go off and do those things. So, the whole point is the mandate has been given. You don't have to sit around and ask yourself, who told me to do it? Jesus told you to do it. He gives you the authority, the activities to do, and the ability to carry it out. The next thing is the method is to be discipled first and then in turn disciple others. So the big question all the time that we spent together this morning is, the question is, who and what are you waiting for? Who and what are you waiting for? And if you have the answer to that question, come and see me after the service. And let's pray and talk about it. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord, in all humbleness. And we ask, Father, we ask, Father, that you speak to us today. Father, we love the church. We love, Father, you. And we ask, Father, that we will help us to be discipled and in turn disciple others. What's at stake is too great. And so, Father, let us be faithful to carry it out. In Jesus' name, amen. We've run over a little bit, and so we're going to ask. We won't have a closing hymn, but my invitation still stands. If you know the answer to that question, who and what are you waiting for, come and see me after the service or see one of the pastors or see Carrie, and we will be happy to hook you up. Okay? God bless you, and we'll hopefully see you Lord willing, next week.